Bronson Lee Norton, Adventures in India and Filling the Day with Life. All right, this is Jack Donovan, and you're listening to PH2T3R, a tear the journal of solar culture. And I'm joined today by Bronson Lee Norton. He's one of the members of the Order of Fire, one of the OG uh, members of the Order of Fire. And uh, we wanted to talk about travel and uh, travel and uh uh, his experiences in India because he left Canada uh, over a year ago, I think now, and uh, has been traveling all over India and Thailand and Sri Lanka. And I just wanted to talk to him a little bit about his experience, you know, his different experiences and what he's learned. And because uh, I think, you know, not very many people do that for that long. People take a little vacation, uh, but he's been doing it for a long time. So I think he's going to have a lot of interesting insights uh, that I think even a lot of people in our group who know him like haven't heard yet. So um, anyway, so let's get started um, with, you know, just a brief outline of like leaving, uh, you know, like leaving Canada and uh, everything that happened with, you know, what that entailed. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a big part of it, right? Like the why, like, why are you doing this? Why are you going on this huge trip? Why are you kind of, going on this abandonment of, you know, a life that was pretty set up back in Canada. And, you know, obviously a lot of it and most of it had to do with the pandemic. Um, and just some of the things that I, you know, had anticipated potentially coming in the future that I wanted to make sure that I had the opportunity to really pack as much life into you know, the next year or two years or whatever amount of time we're going to be able to do that for. And to make up for the lost time, you know, having been locked down in Canada for so long, um, you know, it was a big thing. Like it was a big, it wasn't just, you know, I need to travel. I need to have adventures. It was also like a big part of it was overcoming a lot of the conditioning that I know that had happened to me during the pandemic. And, you know, I think it, uh, you can be wise to all of those things, but it doesn't mean that you're not affected by isolation. You're not affected by, you know, limited opportunities or being ousted by society or becoming a second class citizen by not being vaccinated, those kinds of things. And so I was like, I need to do something different. Right. Cause it's just, this has just become, you know, uh, very monotone, comfortable life that I'm now living. That is not bad, but it's not really, it doesn't have any life in it. And so that was why we basically packed up all of our stuff into storage uh, last summer and uh, left for India in the fall. Um, and so basically like we bought a one-way ticket. We didn't really have any huge plans. There's a few places we thought we might want to go. And, um, but I mean, now I was in India back in October, uh, November, December, and basically after that, all plans went out the window. So we've kind of been on this, this big quest uh, throughout Asia, just allowing the trip to basically guide itself at this point. But um, yeah, you know, it was, it was pretty interesting for me because this was like my first real travel experience. You know, like I backpacked Europe for like three weeks. Um, you know, I've been to Hawaii and around North America, Mexico, whatever, but that's not really the same thing like those are vacations and I don't believe now that vacation and travel are even remotely the same experience or yield the same kind of you know benefits and insights but 
basically, um, so starting in the airport was basically really like where the trip started because, you know, it's just, I was already getting a glimpse of what India was going to be like before I even got on the plane. You know, you, you get through security in Canada, you get to uh, the gate where you're going to be flying and you can see everyone like loading into the airport, basically who's going to be on your plane. And they're obviously going to the same place. So I was like, okay. And um, already like you can feel the energy building just, you know, anytime, like Ed had mentioned, Indians get together in a large groups. It's just, it's very intense. It's, it's uh, there's just always a lot going on. And so it was, I was like, whoa, it's like, you know, you got people that are blasting, you know, Indian music on their phones in the airport, like with their YouTube and, and, uh, you know, people just talking super loud, there's family members packed in. Um, and, you know, as soon as they basically announce we're boarding the plane and they're starting with, you know, certain sections of the plane, like none of that matters. It was like, you know, bum rush basically to, to the gate. And I'm like, holy shit, here we go. Like, this is the adventure that we, that we were, we planned to embark on and here we're doing it. And so um, that was just kind of like a funny little memory of mine. Cause it was like, it, it was like a shift in frequency and it's, it's nothing's going to be the same after we get on this plane and we arrive in, in India. So, but yeah, so basically, um, most of the time, like if people are traveling to India, they're going to fly into Delhi. And so we kind of got into Delhi in the middle of the night. And the first place that we were staying is kind of like this little backpackers neighborhood, um, called Pahar Ganj. And, um, or so I guess it used to be like, kind of like a, a chill kind of hippie backpacker place, but, um, it was just, it was just another level of intensity that I can't even describe to you. So when, when we basically arrived, you know, we're weaving through traffic, we're going through, you know, just the polluted cities, it's nighttime, it's bustling, there's rickshaws, you know, snaking in and out of each other. It's like, you think you're going to be in a near miss accident every, every single time a car passes you. And we end up in this neighborhood and basically, um, my first experience is just getting basically kicked out of our taxi into the middle of like, you know, Blade Runner world. It was, it was crazy. It was just, you know, our taxi driver, you know, we have all these bags and he's basically like talking to my, my wife, like, get out, ma'am, get out, ma'am. <laughs> just shoving us into the street after in the middle of the night, you know, um, it's a super narrow corridor and it's, it's like one in the morning and just absolutely wall shit packed with people like there's so much happening there's lights there's so many noises so many smells and you know i'm trying to get out of the vehicle and uh you know there's just a lineup of, of young indian guys who just not even give me space to get out of my car to put my bags on and so we weren't very far from our the first guest house we were supposed to stay which was ajay guest house and uh and so, you know, like I throw my bag on, I got like big backpack, front pack, two little small backpacks. And, you know, we're just, we're just trudging through the chaos to try and find our guest house. You know, you're tripping over people, you're tripping over, you know, cow shit, dog shit, monkey shit, human shit. You know, you're trying to find, find this, this little guest house that we're supposed to stay at. And, uh, 
we get there after, after like, I don't know what it was. It was over, I think it was over 24 hours of travel. And so you just want to fucking put your bags down, lay your head down and get some rest. And so we get to this kind of dank little place um, that when my wife was here last said used to be kind of like a decent place to stay, but I guess the pandemic just destroyed all these businesses. So they haven't been running at all. And so we kind of get up to a room and it's just filthy, absolute dump, you know, like filthy bed sheets. There's no toilet seat. <laughs> like you, we don't have any of the comforts of home. And I just had this moment where like I put my bags down and I was just like, I just had this moment, almost like a moment of panic where I was like, I had been so underexposed to, you know, just so many people, so much culture, just such intensity after being locked down for so long. And I had this moment where I was just like, you can't turn back now. Like you are literally on the other side of the world. All of you, your comforts have been stripped from you, obviously by choice. And it's like, okay, here we fucking go. It's like time to nut up and, and, you know, embrace this experience. Cause this is kind of what you asked for. Um, and so basically like our night was just kind of getting started. Like we we're like, okay, well, we can't, we can't sleep here. This is just too disgusting. So we get on a bicycle rickshaw um, and we're kind of riding through this, this kind of crazy neighborhood, finally found a place that was half decent to stay. And so we ended up settling into that neighborhood for about, you know, I think we're there for five or six days. Um, and that was actually when I, I sent you this, this first couple of videos of where we were staying and you were like, when did they nuke India? <laughs> 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 and so that, that was Pahar Ganj. And so that was like my first experience kind of being thrust into into like traveling developing countries and so it was pretty intense but um you know the one thing that i remember from just those first few days and and kind of getting settling settled in was you know the intensity was super overwhelming you know you're trying to figure out like you know how guarded am i supposed to be with people how open am i supposed to be with people like who do I need to look out for? Like you're trying to establish like what the level of social trust is in a place, you know, and it's obviously so foreign to you. You don't speak the language. So that was kind of like the first few days was just figuring out like, what is the frequency of this place and how do I match that? So that one, I don't stand out like a sore thumb uh, but two, like I'm having a good experience in this place. And so, you know, that was really, really interesting, but the big thing about walking into that situation. And then the first day where we finally like, okay, we have a place to stay. We get to go explore. I was just like amazed by how much life was going on around me. Just, just how much was happening. And, you know, that's kind of like been the really interesting thing about traveling Asia, but particularly India, just because it's, there are so many extremes is it's just like one big paradox and the longer you're here the more you learn to appreciate that so you know like depending where your mindset is like if you're looking at the filth and the grime and you know the chaos and you know people are trying to you know be deceitful or to get a, a one-up on you it's like there's that side of it but at the same time it's like 
I can't remember who I was talking to this about, but because of like the, like the freedom and the chaos go hand in hand in India. Like the, the reason that you have so much chaos is because there's so much freedom there. And so you kind of have to accept both sides of it in order to really appreciate the experience of India. So, so much of like being in India is, is where your mindset is at. And that's something I've kind of learned like throughout this trip. Um, but so basically we were in Paharganj for a few days and I was just kind of soaking up every experience that I could, you know, I'm smoking, I'm on patios, I'm drinking, I'm eating all kinds of food. That's probably going to make me sick. So I was just like, here we are, like we're, we're this is the adventure that I'd kind of hoped for. And, and, um, and so we kind of explored around Delhi a bit. Like we ate in some of the neighborhoods that uh, Ed had actually suggested to me. And we did find other neighborhoods that were quite posh, which kind of comes back to that, that whole paradox thing. It's like the super crazy thing about India is that basically you can be in one neighborhood and it's like 1920s India, like nothing has changed. People are, are pulling, you know, food carts around you know, it's like super humble living, you know, people, you know, they're, they're village people. And then you can drive 15 minutes and you're in like the most bawling Delhi modern mall that you've ever seen with the most expensive, you know, high-end clothes. And people are just living a completely different reality, you know, just, just layered on top of each other. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and so, we'd kind of spent a little bit of time in Delhi, but like we weren't going to stay there for too long just because it was too intense. The air quality was, was too bad. Um, but we had a lot of cool experiences there. And so that's kind of like, aside from some of these other big cities, like maybe Mumbai, Vrindavan, Varanasi, like the most intense places are going to be these big cities. Um, and so we traveled around a bit and then we ended up, going, I think a couple hours, um, I'm not sure in which direction, but to Agra where the Taj Mahal is. And so there's a bunch of big temples around that area. Like we went to the Taj Mahal, uh, we went to the Red Fort, which was a really interesting place. Um, and then we went to a couple of these old ancient, uh, like Muslim uh, cities. And, you know, I had, I had like, some pretty crazy experiences just within the first week, you know, um, there's this one, one day where we were visiting one of these mosques, uh, cause we'd kind of done one day where we just, we rented a car and we went to all of the main sort of, uh, temples in the area. And that was kind of when like the reality of the extreme poverty that exists there really like came face to face with me. Um, cause we were in the, grounds of this this ancient city i can't remember which one this one was called but there's a bunch of old mosques there and there's some beggars this lady with two children and one of the children had like was covered in mange like how a dog has mange and it was just it was one of the most shocking things i've ever seen and so this kid came up to me begging for money you know i was saying like naheen 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 which is no in in hindi and uh and then he just like wraps himself around my leg and he's covered in sores, like covered in sores and mange. And, you know, it's like, this is like parasitic skin disease. 
probably from like sleeping on the street with the street dogs and stuff like that. Um, and so that was just like a, a, a super shocking and, and gnarly experience that I had there. Um, and so it was like, whoa, it's like, I, I've seen homelessness and drug addiction, you know, in the cities at home, but like, this is just like a different level of experience that, that, that people are kind of having. And so, um, you know, that was just really interesting and kind of like heartbreaking at the same time and, and humbling. Cause you're like, I'm walking around, like I'm excited. I'm traveling. I'm seeing these ancient cities I'm learning about the culture. And then right beneath all of that, there's just, there's tragedy. And so, you know, that was really eye opening for me. Now, just uh, as a person, I guess my question, um, as a selfish question, uh, how are you navigating, like picking these cities? Cause uh, the, the thing about India, when I look at it, uh, cause you know, I've, I've kind of been, you, you've kind of interested me in going and Ed has as well. And, uh, you know, and then I look at the hotel prices and I'm like, Oh my God, it's so cheap. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've thought about it just going over there by myself for a little bit. And, uh, I look at the map and it's like a blank. Like I'm like, there's just mm. like letters. <laughs> you know, like all I'm seeing is really <laughs> letters of like, you know, like, okay. So I've heard of Mumbai or Bombay or whatever. Uh, and a couple of in Delhi and, you know, a few other places, but the rest of it is just letters, you know, like, which is, mm-hmm. I guess it would be like going to Eastern Europe, you know, in the sense of like, that you know that alien language wise um mm. yeah, so it's just a hard to even you know if i go if i went and looked at europe i'd be like okay well here's where i think i want to go you know and pretty easily you know but uh mm-hmm. but yeah with with india yeah yeah like how are you how are you how are you navigating that and figuring out where you want to go next yeah so that's kind of the crazy thing about india is like there's so many different cultures and dialects basically like every 10 to 15 minutes there's like a new a new culture in india you know or a new climate you know there's so many different different things to choose from so i honestly like it would take a lifetime to ever experience india and even then you probably won't see all of it but you know for us at least um, I was kind of lucky because my wife had traveled India a few times before. So we had a few ideas of where to go because um, one of her friends that she grew up with, uh, who is a Canadian guy, was uh, raised in Vrindavan in India. And so just by you know the degree of that connection, we were lucky that we had been kind of guided to which are some good places to start to have certain kinds of experiences. Um, so Delhi is kind of like, you just have to experience Delhi. Like you're going to probably fly into Delhi most likely regardless of where you're flying to. So spend a couple of days in Delhi and see it because it is just a phenomenon in itself. Like it's, it's crazy. It's intense. The sky is black from the pollution. Like you'll never experience anything like it. So that's kind of, you know, just a place to start because it's, it's one of the major cities. Um, but the the reason that we went to Vrindavan, which was kind of like the next spot, was it's just so rich in ancient history and um, temples and 
it just if you want to be you know surrounded by the spirituality of india like that is an extremely holy place to go and so because we had a friend that grew up there it was like oh obviously we'll go there he can tell us what we should we should see so a lot of it has just been friends that have suggested things but there is also like a lot of traveler hubs which is the interesting thing about india like india is so big but you'll bump into the same people in the same places often um and so we started in the north because it was familiar we had friends in the north there's actually a couple indian guys here already that we knew in the north so we're like okay we're going to kind of follow the path where we have some connections and people can kind of help us out because being able to have someone who speaks a little hindi or knows some friends or knows some taxi drivers knows places to eat it's always good to have just a thread of connection so like ed is like the perfect dude to be able to talk to you about that because i mean he was super helpful even when i was in delhi just in telling us where to go eat because it's like it's so big where do i go eat and so we went to con market for example a lot of it is just like word of mouth um but there is you know as you kind of dig into it deeper there is kind of like this backpackers path you know that are kind of like essential places to visit in india and then everything else you know, you find yourself on these side quests where you just find these hidden gems, which is really the interesting part about, you know, the adventure of India. So, um, so yeah, like we went to Vrindavan next and, um, that was, we went, so we were there during Diwali. So again, this was just like sensory overload for me, um, kind of going into this and Vrindavan is not really like a touristy place the only tourists who really seem to occupy the place are Hare Krishna devotees and they stay in their ashram or go to the Hare Krishna temple. Um, and so, you know, that was like, you're in, you're in real India now when we got to Vrindavan, cause there's like, and it's a very, very religious and holy place. Like um, you're not going to find meat there. You know, there's 7,000 temples in Vrindavan. And so if you want to like immerse yourself in Hinduism and the history and to, to just have rare experiences and, and meaningful experiences like Vrindavan, I think in my opinion is the place to go. Um, and so, you know, again, like started off as, as a bit of a rough go, like I got there and I, poisoned myself with water from a dirty water filter and so I had a fever for like five or six days um but of all the places I think I've visited in India so far um Vrindavan I think I had some of the most like rich experiences just because you know it's it's one of those places where like for example you know we took a rickshaw into old Vrindavan one night and we were hitting all of the kind of, we had a friend that took us luckily and we kind of hit a bunch of places. And like, there was this one temple that we walked up to where they're doing fire puja at night. It's a very small temple. Um, but like kind of cruising through these corridors and everything is kind of lit by firelight and it's dusty and everything's glowing. There's all these smells um, you know, there's no other Westerners in sight. And you're just like, whoa, this is, I can imagine what India would have been like, you know, a hundred years ago, or even 500 years ago. And, um, 
but we get to this little temple, which is a special place that our friend wanted to take us. And one of the reasons he wanted to take us was there's this little lady there who is kind of like a saint. And we didn't know that he was taking us to see her, but we're kind of walking up this path and there was like a ball in the ground, a blanket, it's dark. And I was kind of freaked out because it started moving. Um, but it was actually this tiny, tiny little skinny little lady with a shaved head. And she was 90 years old and had literally not left those steps of that temple since she was eight. So her parents left her there and she stayed there since she was eight. So she's basically like a renunciate, completely devoted to her spirituality and stayed at the temple and had basically survived through charity. And she stayed inside this tiny little one room home, um, you know, where she basically, you know, it was lit by like firelight and, and there's someone in there like feeding the fire with wood. And she just lived outside the temple and basically just survived off of charity and devoted her whole life to being essentially a renunciate and living on the steps of that temple. And so she'd never left the temple steps in her entire life. And, um, but she just had this like really special aura about her. Um, so, you know, like we, we gave her a little money and then she put her hands like on my, my wife's forehead and then blessed her and was just like, you know, very lovingly like touched her and was super, you know, expressing gratitude and stuff for us, for us helping her or whatever. Um, and it's just like, it's one of those experiences that you'll find yourself in this situation. You're like, there's no other place in the world where I could experience this. And you just stumble upon these kinds of special moments all of the time. Um, and so that was, that was one really kind of interesting interaction that we had. Cause it's kind of one of those moments where like you're in it and it's happening and it just, it, you know, you're making a memory and that just happens repeatedly as, as you kind of like let the journey through India guide you. But, um, it was, so like I was saying, it was right in the middle of Diwali, um, which was just crazy because there was so many it's a holy city so being in in Vrindavan for Diwali it's like a special thing as an Indian and there was so many people in the city that they had to bring in the military to block all entries of the city and not allow any more people in because of the density of people in there so it was like it was just it was crazy and so on the night of Diwali we're sitting on the roof of the ashram that we were staying in which cost like I don't know, 700 rupees a night. It was like an $8, $7 a night place that we were staying in. And um, from the rooftop, all of the city basically looked like it was lit up with stars because everyone puts the little burning lamps out and candles outside and lines them around their houses. And there's fireworks going off so much that it just sounded like you're in a war zone and you're looking around. There's monkeys literally sitting on the roof like watching this, you know, just spectacular scene of lights and noise. And, you know, we're just kind of sitting up there and, you know, it's, it's dusty and you can see people kind of like with their families and their homes from the roof. And um, yeah, it was just, it's just so intense, but, but every, you know, place you go, you just, the longer you stay there, the more, full of life you realize that that it is um and uh yeah like it's 
you know, and this is just, this is literally just like the start of my trip. It was interesting. Like, you know, when you said, Hey, let's do this podcast, I started going through some of my notes and it's like, Holy fuck. Like I have lived a thousand lives on this trip already. Like I've been on more adventures, had more profound and special experiences and connections with people in, in, in the last year than I have in my entire life combined. And so, you know, and, and so much of that has been in India because it's, it's just so different. And, and that's because they've really held on to their culture. Um, but um, speaking of monkeys, I had a kind of a couple of funny, but also crazy notes here about the monkeys in uh, Vrindavan. And so uh, basically like Vrindavan is completely overrun by rabid monkeys. Like it's actually quite scary just walking around there. Everyone has to walk around with lead pipes or sticks to beat the monkeys off because they're so aggressive. Um, and they're huge. Like they're just juiced out mean ass monkeys and they will attack you and steal things from you and rip your sunglasses off and take your phone and all kinds of crazy shit. Um, but, uh, there is, and I mean, again, this is like the contrast It's like the beauty of this celebration of Diwali. And then there's another moment where I'm walking down the street and a giant rabid monkey had actually scalped a street dog. And so literally there's a dog that comes running past me uh, running away from monkeys and basically from the front of his forehead down his back was completely scalped and and skin and like skin muscle everything exposed and so the reason that some of this is happening is the monkeys are rabid but the monkeys basically have taken over the city there's not enough food for the dogs there's not enough food for the cows there. So a lot of the dogs and the cows are starving because the monkey problem is so bad. And so that was one crazy thing I saw. But the other interesting thing about the monkeys is they all seem to hang around the Hanuman temple, which is kind of like this funny thing, but I've seen it more than once throughout India that all of the monkeys will hang outside the monkey temple. Um, and it's, it's kind of like this funny quirky thing, but it's weird. And so we, there's all these monkeys hanging outside of the, the, this one temple. And then we ended up bumping to a friend and we asked, Hey, what temple is this? And it's the Hanuman temple, but it was the temple of this guru Neem Karali Baba, who is supposed to be uh, the last incarnation of Hanuman. And so, you know, this is another one of those experiences where you're just like, okay, like this is one of those special moments that is just going to be trapped in time. And so anyways, we're walking around, this Hanuman temple and basically this, this caretaker had kind of noticed us. Like we were the only Westerners there and he waved over to us and, um, and took us over to this little door. It was locked. And so he unlocked it and he's like, he can't speak English. So he signaled for us to go inside and opened it up for us. And then we went inside and um, it was actually the bedroom of Neem Kari Lee Baba, this, guru who had lived there um because it was his ashram and so there's like a bed there that's laid out there's photos of him and stuff um and and all of his things and different like uh objects from his life that were in his bedroom it's been like perfectly observed like his bedroom and they kind of signaled for us to go in and uh and so you know we got to like just sit in that room which basically no one else had been given access to and you know got to just pray and kind of be in this like special place um 
in one of one of like the holiest cities in India. And so that was kind of like a really cool experience. Um, and it was, it's just, it's funny. It's like all these synchronicities, like the monkeys outside the monkey temple. We go in, it's the Hanuman temple. Oh, it's actually the temple of the guru. That's supposed to be uh, the reincarnation of the monkey God. And it's, you know, it's like, there's all these interesting just layers of myth that is, is makes it so exciting to visit these places. Cause there's just a deep, story to everything that you see and touch so so I, mean, I was thinking uh, you know like uh, how has that affected like your perspective on the on just spirituality and the world and so forth um you know it's it's interesting it's like because you're, you're surrounded by so much spirituality so much ritual um you know so many deities objects sacred objects just sacred places with old history um as far as like my spirituality goes you know i i couldn't couldn't really like say this exists or that doesn't exist but there is a resonance to certain places that are far more potent than others and i think it's because of a lot of the things that are that are performed there like i think there's something to you know going to a place where for thousands of years people have been performing rituals and praying and providing offerings and just being in a, a, a state of devotion um that you feel something in those places like you feel something different in those places that you don't feel in places where that doesn't exist um, and it, it, it exists more here than anywhere that I've been, um, you know, and, and a part of it I think is too, like, it's your headspace going into it. Like when you come to India, you're humbled like big time. You're, you know, it, and the other interesting side of India is that it really is a place that, um, instigates a lot of self-reflection. And so you become very present in all of the experiences that you have here. And, you know, whether you're reflecting on where you are or the history of where you are, or even just, you know, what's inside of you that's being brought out by all of these, you know, different experiences, you know, I feel like if you want to call it spirituality, that's a very spiritual experience. You know, if there is a human spirit, it'll be, it'll be amplified in India through doing all of these, these things, performing these rituals, you know, praying to these deities or, you know, just trying to understand why they're here or, or, or why people are doing these different things. But, you know, one, one experience that I had, and I won't say the name because I don't want people to go there. I'll tell you if you ever go there, but we ended up in this one place in Vrindavan, which was like walking into ancient india like the vedic period of india it was fascinating there was no other temple that i've ever been in like it so you you walk in um it's very traditional like there's no technology um it's the floor of it is all sand like soft sand that's been groomed um and inside there's like uh, there's it, i don't know what the name of the ceremony was called but unlike other places where people kind of come in, they can be loud, they can take pictures, they can do all this. It was like a ritual that was done every night. 
And so you go in and all the men sit on one side, all the women sit on the other side. You cannot have your legs exposed. You have to be covered. Um, And they're performing all these fire rituals, which was really fascinating. And all of the people from the temple, like, I guess they would be monks, but I I don't know if they're monks or what what they would have called them in this case, because it wasn't like any other uh, ceremony that I've been to. Um, But all of their faces are painted gold. And they were wearing like these beautiful white, you know, um, bottoms, I guess it'd be kind of like, like skirts. And, um, and they're performing all these rituals and everyone's sitting on the ground super peacefully, uh, listening to them chant and do these fire rituals. And as the men walk out, they're doing parikrama around the deity. And um, I, I can tell you like the, that experience, like just being in the presence of that, you know, like you feel spiritual, like you feel like you're having a spiritually enlightening experience in, in that kind of in that kind of setting. And, you know, because everyone is also participating in it, the energy of that surrounding you and the intention of the rituals that, you know, everyone knows what to do. Everyone's done this before. They're all devotional to it. Um, it's just, it's super, super potent. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to really describe. So I understand why, like, you know, people come to India and they have an experience like that. And it completely changes their perspective on life Um, because I don't think we ever get to feel that at home. Even if you are like an intentional person or you create an altar for yourself or you pray, like it's just, if you live in the Western world, you've never been in a place where people have done that ritual for thousands of years in that place, you know, with those, those same intentions. Yeah. There's nothing that, that old. I mean, even, even Christianity isn't really that old. Uh, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. in, in comparison, um, you know, you could go to a really old church in Europe, which is that, that does have a different feeling. Uh, you know, the, the the ones in Europe mm-hmm. are different than the ones in America. You know, like oh, mm-hmm. this, this is you know, like five, six, seven, eight hundred years old. Uh, but uh, I, I wonder if, if a lot of that is just because obviously I've conducted a good number of rituals and so forth at mm-hmm. this point. And what does change is the level of intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Americans, I mean, I think in, in Canadians and whatever, like Westerners, uh, especially of a certain age, like the past like 30 years, um, are kind of hipsters in the sense of like, they don't want to go all the way into anything. Mm. You know, they don't want to do full intention. They always want to be kind of like laughing on the outside, like, and be like, like, oh, this is, we're just doing a thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. and not really be invested in it because they're afraid of looking silly. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you get a lot of people, you know, if you get people who are all the way in on anything, uh, it does change the vibe a lot. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like, because everybody's, there's an uncertainty, you know, I, in the difference between like uh, conducting a ritual with like someone who's, never done it before there is an uncertainty like am i doing it right it's there's a confusion level there but if you get people mm-hmm. who've been doing the same thing for you know like a year um there's a different level of like they've let that go and they're just doing the thing and, and there's you know so there's more mm-hmm. tension and i feel i feel like you can feel intention 
uh, in, in a lot of these kind of things. So, yeah. you know, like if someone's really serious about something, you know, like it, it adds weight to it. And, you know, if they take it seriously, then you take it seriously. You know, in the same way, and that sounds like obviously you're mm -hmm. in a place where people are taking it seriously. And, okay, it's serious now. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's the vibe I think that create that creates whether you know whether that's supernatural or whatever. But the, you know, the, this intention uh, and that if we're okay, we're going to take this seriously. And he, even other kinds of rituals that aren't like spiritual, you know, like uh, you know, if, um, <laughs> like Chris and I have been talking a lot about magic and sorcery and you know what what that is. And, uh, you know, if you, I mean, probably I would imagine when people are getting, you know, made into Marines, let's say, mm -hmm. and that's a big ceremonial thing. And I've actually heard some things, uh, from people who've gone through parts of the military or whatever, that there's like secret bonfires and like all kinds of things where it's like, it's really about people are really invested in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's a different thing, you know, like then, then us kind of being a la carte about everything, you know, like, uh, it, uh so I don't know. It's, I think it's it's interesting to think of. And then, you know, kind of my next question that follows, which is kind of an open question and maybe not even a question, but uh, like, how do we create that? Do you, like, like, how do you create? Because obviously you can't boom thousands of years. <laughs> like there, no. you can't create that. But how do you bring that back or create something new like that? Because someone at the beginning of that said, hey, I have an idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like when they started doing it, I mean, because that's how everything works. You know, someone said, hey, I have an idea and they start doing a thing. Like, how do you create that? Oh. So okay. uh, it's very much like you said, I think the intention and sin sincerity. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yes. So I think to what you're saying, like, it's about the sincerity of what you're doing. Because people can feel sincerity and people can also feel insecurity. Like, you know, our bullshit radar as human beings is so strong when you feel that the person who's leading a ritual or leading a ceremony is either not sincere or experiencing insecurity about what they're doing. Like the energy of that is not there because without the confidence of the person leading the ritual, the people participating in the ritual will also start to feel insecure. And rather than all of that good energy being channeled into one purpose, you know, it's very scattered energy. And I, you know, I, I feel like one thing I've taken from this is like, you know, the, the frequency of different energies by different actions, I think is, is, is real or at least that's like the spiritual take that I've gotten from it by going to these places, because you can really feel that like, you know, there's one other temple in Vrindavan and I had sent some pictures of it, but there was this crazy like uh, fire puja that were, they were doing. They were parading people around on like a throne over guys' shoulders and they had brought everyone out into the courtyard and the fire's burning. And there was probably like 500 people there all chanting the same Vedic chant in a courtyard with, you know, obviously sacred herbs being burned and offerings being done and people singing and, you know, like there's passion, but there's sincerity behind it. Like they believe in it. And I think that's like what creates that is the collective sincerity of the whole group and the belief in that clear purpose, I think is how 
you can create that. And it's, it's just getting everyone on that page, um, I think requires the individual work towards freeing yourself of these insecurities. Like if you can get 20 guys together who are not insecure about themselves and know what their intention is with that ritual, like that's Mm -hmm. when you create real magic. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's been my experience is like, when you get the guys who've, I keep telling this to the guys who did the fire ritual with me uh, last time, I was like, well, next time you come, you're going to bring a whole different energy because you know what's going down and you already liked it. <laughs> you're not having, <laughs> like you're already into it the first time. So, you know, you, you get people that worry, like, am I allowed to make noise? Am I, I always get that question. I always used to get that question at rituals. Like, uh, are, am I allowed to shout? <laughs> you know, like, like, and, and uh, you know, certain things like that. And once they know the answers to those questions, um, then they like go all the way in a little bit more every mm. time. And then when they're going all the way in, then they're bringing everybody else's energy up with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's the that's that's the exciting thing. And then that that that's the threshold where then people get superstitious. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like uh, once you've been doing something for a long enough time, I mean, I've had that experience myself um, where if something starts, someone starts doing something off, you're like, you're like, whoa, that's not mm. okay. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you're throwing the whole fucking vibe off. You can't do that. <laughs> you know, like you are like, that's what, no, 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 no. And people get like angry about it. You know, like, cause it's, that's what it gets, starts to get interesting. Like you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know? Well, that's an important distinction. Like, especially in the beginning, I imagine that's how, you know, they, cause you know, people didn't just like come up with all of these ideas and it's like, okay, we have this like perfect thing that, that means this and everyone knows what that is. It's like, you had to push certain boundaries to figure out. And, you know, part of that is like, they didn't have all of these distractions back then. So people were probably much more in tune with themselves and what different acts or actions or rituals, you know, made or how, how it made either other people respond or, you know, how it made them feel within themselves by doing them. And so, you know, that's, I mean, that's a good way to like, if you want to create something new is to, you know, figure out what those boundaries are by pushing them in a group setting, because, you know, like you're going to get either positive or negative feedback either as a leader or as a participant from the leader um, just by performing different actions and like expressing yourself, you know, through, through these rituals. Cause either the leader is going to be like, mm, that's fucking up the whole vibe of this whole thing. Or, you know, maybe somebody does something like maybe some guy just starts a certain drumming pattern and it's like, it brings everyone into that. And now you've got yeah. like a part of your, your, your ceremony where it's like we drum and we chant because it makes us feel a certain way. And it's like, we'll can make a connection to, something that that invokes inside of ourselves and we're going to feed that because it makes us feel good or whether we feel like it's giving power to something else or we can draw power from it from offering that you know and um i mean like this is this is stuff that i was kind of into before but Mm -hmm. since getting to really experience like the real thing here it's just amplified my interest in like the importance of these rituals and just the significance that people have in their lives. And even just 
the beauty of it. You know, like running through the mountains, like I can tell you, like when we were doing our running challenge, I'm running, literally running through the Himalayas, having this moment where there's, I'm in the mountains and there's this tiny little temple and there's about 40 women in beautiful red and gold saris um, singing. I don't, I don't know what they were singing or which goddess that they were singing to. I know that Kali and, and Durga are big ones up here, but it's like, you know, that's something that you're never going to see back home. And it just, to be in a place where that's happening and in a culture where that's happening also brings so much beauty to a place. And so like we can create beauty by doing that and, and creating these, you know, these um, intentional gatherings with other men, you know, and women can do that too. And it's something that's like missing big time because it also is such, it creates such a sense of connectedness and community when you're in that setting, like you're not, you don't have to be socializing with people, but you all know why you're there and you know why the guy sitting next to you is there. And whether you're having your individual experience, you're co-creating experience for everyone else. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a that's a big difference because, uh, you know, a lot of people set up home altars and they do their own little thing. But there is a different thing that happens when you do something with a group of people that are all, do, all doing mm-hmm. the same thing. Uh, it creates an identity, it created like a, a collective consciousness kind of thing that happens. Um, it's a definitely a different vibe. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. it's a. And that's, it's, it's hard to create, but you know, it can be done. You know, like I've seen it done. So I'd say I'm going to have to have, uh, all of our guys, all of our guys listening to this, uh, but especially, uh, actually Kyle and, uh, uh, Kyle and both Josh are uh, doing fire rituals in the next like week or two, uh, based on my instructions. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) like in two different, like in Canada and Australia, I'm really excited that that's happening. Uh, you know, like, and, and so they're going to mm-hmm. do that for the first time and see what that is. And all the stuff that you and I are talking about right now is part of that discussion that they, you know, they need to have with themselves, you know, like that's mm-hmm. to be able to do that, you know? So I think you know, that's, that's kind of really exciting uh, to have that going on. But uh, I, I don't know what, what what's your time like, cause we're about to hit on an hour. Um, but Let's let's keep going. This is super okay, cool. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. I just wasn't sure if we had to wrap up because you had said what time, but uh, yeah, like what's so? Let's talk about the next. Uh, you know, because so far you're probably like what a month into your trip. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Literally, you know? literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally yeah. a month, a month in. You know, like mm-hmm. that's. I mean, that's fuck. That's a crazy thing, right? It's like right. The my concept of time has completely changed. You know, because your your days are just so full here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's like I was saying, there's so much life happening around you. And um that's one thing that I think is missing back home. And I think, you know, there's there's so many discussions about, you know, comfort and too much comfort in Western society, but like I don't think people really know what they're talking about. Like, I think they have an idea of what they're talking about. And a lot of it is associated with like self-development circles and Mm -hmm. fitness circles. But like when you're in a place where, you know, quite literally people have nothing and they're happy and people at home have everything and they're not happy. Like you, you really realize like what it means to 
be alive or like a place to have life in it, you know, like, and part of that, maybe that does actually come from, from poverty is the fact that like people don't have time for silly problems. Like they're out hustling, they're out selling things, they're out growing things, they're carting things around you know, there's, there's like a purpose to every moment when, when you're here, or even just like the way that people take time out of the day to sit down and like have chai time. Like every Indian is having chai time and it's important. And you're sitting around with the guys and you're talking and you're having chai because like, that's a joy that you get out of the day. And you really, you really see that in all the places you go here in India. Um, but I guess, yeah, that, that was probably, yeah, realistically like the first month of my trip. But after that, we ended up in Rishikesh and just getting to Rishikesh was like a quest in itself because the day that we were supposed to leave, uh, our taxi driver had driven out from Delhi and then his alternator blew. And we're like, we literally have to be out of this place today. And we had all our shit packed and we're like standing in the street waiting for a car to take us, uh, you know, like it's supposed to be like a five hour drive. So we waited two hours. We had another car pick us up. And it took us 10 hours to get to Rishikesh. And basically, we're, you know, and this is like 38, 39 degrees. And uh, in order for the car to not overheat and shut off, the air conditioning had to be turned off. And so for the first like two hours, we were stopping probably every three kilometers for him to go outside, adjust something, come back in. And then eventually we were like, just turn the fucking air conditioning off. And so we basically sat in no AC car in almost 40 degrees Celsius for 10 hours <laughs> driving through India in this, this busted up taxi um, just to get to Rishikesh. So that was like, that was, that was quite the trip to get there. Um, but Rishikesh was like a really, really special place. It's kind of different in that the, you know, obviously the the deities that they worship there are different. So the culture there is different. Um, most people who've seen pictures of India have seen a picture of Rishikesh and the Ganges basically cutting through this valley that's lined with, you know, kind of colorful buildings. And uh, Rishikesh is like the land of Shiva. It's in the mountains. And, um, you know, there really is like a, a special energy there. The, just being in those mountains, like I think mountains in particular just have that. I mean, I feel that in the Himalayas, it's got a different vibe up here, but it, it just feels special. Um, but uh, this, you know, this one experience that I had in Rishikesh, like, you know, again, is another one of those moments where you're like, it's happening. And you're like, when this is over, I'll be sad that it's over because this will be one of the most like, powerful experiences of my life. And I only get to do it once, but we, um, we ended up going, getting a tip from our guest house owner, uh, because we were kind of tired of being around all the Indian tourists. It was just, it was really a lot of drinking and smoking and stuff. Um, but we ended up on our five-year anniversary, uh, going to this place called Vashistha cave or Vashistha Guha. And, um, and so basically this, this place is right on, it, it, we had to drive a scooter about 30, uh, about 45 minutes up the mountain, um, out of the city. And it's in this little village. And, uh, there is, 
it's right on the bank of the Ganges. And this part of the Ganges was just pristine. Like there's no trash. It's just perfect. Like it's how you would imagine India would have been like, you know, in ancient times, um, you know, just completely untouched part of the river bank. And so there's this cave temple there. And um, basically, so this cave um, is supposed to be where this uh, sadhu, who they say is one of the, I believe it's the last, I may be wrong, but I believe it's the last incarnation of one of the seven immortal sages. And um, so basically, he... He, he basically went to this cave and lived there for many years. And then I think in 1961, when he was 82, um, they say that he reached Samadhi and died in that cave. <laughs> and um, so long that I haven't butchered that story, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. And um, basically, so we went, we went, to this place it's right on the edge of this little village there's nobody there we went at like four or five in the morning so it's pitch black and we go inside we make a little offering to the deity before we go in and we kind of walk through this little cavern and inside is just uh, a picture of um uh, of fascista and then there's a small little shiva shrine lit by oil lamps so the, the whole cave is lit by oil lamps and you kind of go in and you can do uh, pour water over the um, Shiva shrine, which has flowers and stuff. And then there was just a couple little mats on this stone floor inside this pitch black cave. And it's just glowing. And there's a picture of this, uh, this, this guru or sadhu. And uh, we like sat and had our five year anniversary started off meditating at five in the morning by ourselves in the cave in India with this incredible story and history behind it. And, um, and, you know, like, you know, some people say when they meditate, they'll kind of get into a state of relaxation where they start to see colors or, you know, have different kind of like physical, um, you know, experiences and stuff. And I just felt this like burning buzz in there in the middle of my forehead. Like it felt like this little ball in the middle of my forehead was just electrified. And, um, you know, we're sitting in there and I just kind of had this sense of like, peace and warmth that kind of washed over me sitting in there and just the richness of this experience was so incredible. It's hard to describe. Um, and, you know, part of that is the story, but again, part of that is like, you know, how many years did this, did this guy live there in just on the pristine Ganges by himself, just uh, praying basically in this cave, whatever might resonate in there, you know, you feel it. Um, and so, and then after that, we basically came out just as the sun was rising, some rocks, and I uh, went into the Ganges River and, and blessed myself in the Holy River. And, um, you know, it's like, you just, you can't have that experience anywhere else in the world. That's why India is so special. Um, so, you know, it's like, if you're, if you're looking at like the ugly parts of it or the grime or, you know, the fact that maybe they don't have proper like waste disposal, you know, I really feel what I've learned traveling India is India will show you whatever is inside of you as a person. And it, there's no other place like that where you come here 
And like, if you're a negative person or you're a closed-minded person or a judgmental person or an angry person or a fearful person or an anxious person, like that just turns it up to 11. But if you're open and have grace and look for the good in things and the positive in things, you'll just repeatedly be presented with these opportunities to experience so much beauty and it's it's littered everywhere but it's like because i know so many people and even myself at the beginning of my trip coming out of covid with you know just all kinds of fucking problems you know with my mental health coming out of that and the beginning of the trip was like a real grind like a real challenge and it just started to transform as i kind of matched the you know the the pace of india and got into the flow and um and started to be open and looking for these things and you know just that's just one of like so many memories that i'll have where you're just like that was like you were saying you know like the lightning in the bottle like that's something i had that i get to cherish and it'll never be like that in the same way in the same place ever again you know um yeah and so like that was just just one of those those kind of special experiences that i had in india and there's there's endless ones like we could probably do like a six-hour podcast on the adventures i've had in india and and you know but um it's it's really interesting because one thing you notice too especially i think in rishikesh is like and it's kind of sad that you see young indians trying to move away from their culture and more towards like a emulating a western culture and they're having a lot of problems um you know like phone addictions alcohol addictions you know drug addictions they're not going to these places to worship them you know the way that they should be in their own country and then the westerners are trying to escape the western culture and not that all of western culture is bad because we have a lot of luxuries that you know people would kill for um, but they're coming here to experience the magic of this place. So it's kind of this, this strange crossover that's happened. And I really noticed it in Rishikesh because Rishikesh is such a hub. You know, you get just a plethora of Indian travelers coming from the city to party. And then you have this huge backpacking culture and yoga culture and spiritual culture of people coming here to like prey on the Ganges. And so um again like that paradox you're seeing these two realities just you know happening at the same time and it's um i mean it's it's yeah it's it's fascinating um but basically so we were in we were in rishikesh for for quite a while like i think we were there for like two months so we were kind of living there we got pretty comfortable but part of the reason that we got stuck there we originally wanted to go to the south um and I wanted to see like Kerala, uh, Goa. Um, we wanted to see some of like the, the places that had a bit of like a colonial history, um, more jungly, more beachy. Like there's, you know, Rajasthan is another place that we really wanted to visit on that first part of the trip um, because it's just so rich in like creators and like art and jewelry and tapestries and um it's just a really cool place music like up here in himachal people come up from rajasthan to perform music as like street performers and they just have these beautiful outfits and they play beautiful music and they all sing and so that was another place we really wanted to visit 
Um, but again, like pandemic stuff started getting in the way. So I guess Canada had pissed off India with their immigration stuff during COVID with India. And so basically we got to Rishikesh and we couldn't use our bank cards. We couldn't take cash out. We couldn't buy flights from uh, Indian airlines. Um, we couldn't get on uh, most buses. So we had to take private taxis everywhere. And it was just getting really hard to get where we wanted to go. Um, and so we were eventually, we were like, fuck it. We're going to take this shitty 40 hour train ride to the South so we can be in the South for the season. Cause you, you have to move for the seasons because the weathers are so seasons are so extreme with the weather. Um, and so we were going to go South and we just kept hitting roadblocks. So eventually uh, we we're like, okay, we're going to try and do this Panchakarma thing. Um, but it was almost winter at that point. So we ended up driving 10 hours in a taxi to Dharamshala only to discover that basically the entire city was shut down. So it was like pouring rain, snowing, none of the businesses were open. There was nowhere you could even get food. Um, and so we did finally find a guest house, stayed one night there. And then my wife got super sick with bronchitis. So we're back in our taxi the next morning to drive 10 hours back to Rishikesh because we had nowhere to go basically at that point. Um, and so that was kind of like the final straw we were like okay something something is steering us away at this time you know kerala was flooding so even the places we wanted to see there was catastrophic flooding happening in the south and that's when basically we ended up in thailand so we were in thailand for like 75 days honestly like thailand would be a whole episode but i have nothing but good things to say about thailand then we ended up in sri lanka for a month and Basically, for the last, I think, just over three months, we're back in in northern India. Um, and so the one of the main purposes for coming up to this part of India was to do the Panchakarma that we planned to do. And we finally had an opportunity because our doctor uh, had just opened up an Ayurvedic hospital. Um, so we actually had a place to stay, even though it was kind of preseason. Um, and so we are now in Dharamkot uh in Himachal Pradesh which is essentially the foothills of the Himalayas um so there's kind of like some green hills and then right behind it you can see basically where the Himalayan peaks start so it's this beautiful uh place in the Kangra Valley and um essentially we are we did we stayed at the Ayurvedic hospital for 42 days uh in a in a hospital setting and so that was pretty intense um Ayurveda is like an ancient Indian medicine from originating in the Vedic period. I think it's about between 5,000 and 3,000 years old. Um, obviously, we've had discussions about this before, but that's when the uh, literary history starts. Um, people that you know are from here believe that there was an ancient oral tradition that was obviously passed down from different deities and, and things like that, which is recorded in the Vedas. Um, and so we went through basically this intensive detox for detox and retox for 42 days. Um, and, you know, that was, again, just like an adventure in itself. Um, so what I was kind of doing there was essentially like a liver detox and retox and basically just getting my whole constitution back to a healthy baseline, um, balancing hormones 
testosterone, you know, fertility, all these different kinds of things, which is those kinds of treatments for men are very popular in India, especially with Ayurveda, um, because vitality is everything to Indians. Um, and so I started that out basically, you know, with just taking some medicines for a couple of days. And the first medicines that I was taking um, essentially activates the liver. And so it starts to draw out any disease that you have in the liver and you start to kind of get like some side effects um, because the idea behind Ayurveda versus Western medicine uh, or even any other kind of like cleanse is that you actually remove the disease and then um, redirect the disease pathway so that it's, it's no longer creating pathways of disease. And so I started with that and then after my skin got all flared up, I got all, you know, kind of sick feeling these, these detoxing systems are, and we ended up starting with uh, a ghee treatment, which ghee is obviously super popular with the order because of Ed and, you know, the, the interest in the Vedas that everyone has, um, which I'm sure when people read about this, they'll probably get more interested in it. But um, uh, so after that, I, I was drinking ghee for like four days, five days, and just increasing the volume of ghee every single day to astronomical amounts. Like, I think the first day it was like 150 mLs, and then next day was 200 mLs, and then 250 mLs, and then 300, and then 350 mLs. So I'm literally drinking like cups of ghee like that are that are that are this big like three thousand calories in in one sitting in these in this from the fat and um and so basically with with that is to the the very short form is to uh basically increase your metabolism to create more fire or agony in the body to burn up the disease that's now been extracted and released in your body. Now, I, I may not be defining this, this correctly because before I had those treatments, I hadn't been studying Ayurveda. I'm kind of getting into it just now. Um, but there's the ghee treatments that started. And then basically after that, I had a huge, like, 72 hour detox where basically they started giving me medicines that just flushes everything out of your system. Uh, you can't eat anything. It's just water for the first, I think, 48 hours. And then on the third day, all you can drink is rice water, which is literally just the pasty white water for off, like that's been cooked off of rice. And then the next day, all you can have is rice water with a little bit of rice in it. And then uh, I think on the last day, I was finally able to have rice. And then they gradually start to introduce like other lighter foods, like basic dal, and then you can have dal and rice, and then you can, you know, gradually get your system back to digesting proper food. So that was like a huge mental challenge for me, which was, that's what I kind of treated it as. It was pretty difficult, but, um, because you're basically starving for like four days. Um, but after that, the detox is when they, start to nourish your body at least in my case every case is different based on what could what your issues are but for me the whole process is they detox the body first and then they nourish it and build you back up so you're basically depleted to nothing you know i lost like 15 or 20 pounds at that point halfway through um and then 
they start to give you oral massages and oil enemas. And so the oils are like medicated oils with different herbs. Like one of the, the oils that I was getting was supposedly like the cream of the crop Ayurvedic oil, which was uh, only ever intended for kings in the Vedic period. So that was really interesting. And that was like, that was like a, a vitality mixture for like testosterone and strength and fertility and all this kind of things. Um, and so as the weeks went on, it's like a very subtle and gradual, you know, process. But by the time that I finished that process, it's like night and day. Like I, I all of my inflammation was gone. All of my, uh, uh, sleep issues were gone. All of my, um, what else? Like, uh, digestive issues were, were gone you know, libido was back, strength was back. And so after basically a month of being out of the hospital, um, I saw significant improvements from this, from these treatments. Um, you know, so it was just, it was just really fascinating. I mean, now like I'm continuing to take certain medicines because, you know, sometimes after the initial treatments, they'll give you certain medicines to kind of keep that going because it may take an additional like three to six months to be like 100%. So I'm um, taking like, I showed the guy Shilajit Gold, um, which Ed has talked about with me a little bit. It's essentially a nano medicine that has um, uh, precious metals in it and different metals and ashes and things like that. So there's literally 24 karat gold in these capsules that I'm taking. So not only is it good for you, but like I can tell you there's something really, you know, mythical and interesting about literally ingesting gold for your health as a medicine. So it's, yeah. you know, we, we got to start that in the order. That's, that, that's something we, yeah. <laughs> we all need to be eating gold, not, not just, yeah. not just gold monster, but like gold. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Like that's, that's how you build solar culture is you, you literally ingest 24 karat gold. <laughs> Maybe I should like that. That should be my Twitter thing. Like I should be like, everybody has to have their health weird thing on Twitter. <laughs> start, yeah. Start the uh, like, you aren't even healthy unless you're eating gold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, this is crazy. It's like, and you know, the, the most fascinating thing about it is like, where did this knowledge come from? Like, you know, um, my doctor actually had a funny anecdote today because we were talking about nanomedicine in my Ayurvedic course that I'm taking under him right now that just started. But so, you know, Ayurveda wasn't always like a lucrative medicine you know, if you were doing Ayurveda, it's because you really just cared, wanted to help people. And you also cared about your lineage because the lineage is necessary. Like it takes like 20 years to become a, a, a real, you know, Ayurveda doctor who knows what he's doing. But when he was a, a boy, his grandfather, who was his mentor, literally melted down his grandmother's gold jewelry to make medicine in the village. So because they were they were living in like like dirt floor, like brick village. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like in interesting things like that. It's just, it's fascinating. And I mean, we haven't gotten into the medicine in the course. I've only been in three days, but like they've, they've gone over a lot of the different philosophies and where they started. And it's just, it's shaping up to be like super, super fascinating, you know, like above almost any other medicine that, you know, like ancient traditional medicine, there's so much history to it. They sample from so many different philosophies. It's so old. And, um, you know, there's like, there appears to be like in its own way, a real science about it, which I'm just kind of starting to learn. 
Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating saying that's the other thing too, about India, not just with things like medicine, but when you travel here, there is an endless amount of things that you can learn, uh, affordably that you just, you can't at home. Like you have access to so much skill and like craftsmanship. Like there's, there's gurus here for anything. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, getting some jewel, silver jewelry made right now, but for like 400 rupees a lesson for like four hour lessons, I can go and learn silversmithing, which is something I've always wanted to do, but it's like 500 bucks or something for a two day weekend course from someone with virtually like no background at some jewelry school in Vancouver. And I can come learn from a master who's been doing it in these mountains for like 20 years for, for next to nothing. Or you can, you know, in the same little village that I'm in, you know, you can learn yoga, you can go and take Ayurvedic uh, courses, you can go, you know, get music lessons, you can learn how to make instruments, um, you can get singing lessons, you can get cooking lessons. It's like, it's just, you know, there's, India has so many masters, you know, within the country that you can come here. And, you know, I mean, that's like, Ed is such a perfect case for that. It's like, he came to India, he's like, uh, a freaking guru in the Vedas, you know, he's a, a chef, you know, of all worldly cuisines. And, you know, I didn't even know this until recently, but he, he was singing Raga like professionally for like 15 years or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, like so much of that is available to you here. So it's just amazing, you know, to be able to come here and, and it's accessible. It's like, and I was like, well, can you, you know, apply for this course and we'll see if we have spots for you it's like you just fucking show up and you pay on any day you want and someone's always available to you and um yeah it's just it's just really easy it's really easy to learn a lot of different really interesting things here and and have different experiences like that for for very cheap which most people wouldn't have the opportunity to do back home like that's one of the reasons i've been out here so long is you know i'm living like a king up here living it up you know obviously i don't have the comforts of home but like the trade-off is is you know the payoff is disproportionately in my favor you know from from dealing with some of the things that like people would just never go without like i've been hand washing my laundry for you know over nine months you know i don't even think about that anymore but that's like these these small little you know uh, I guess things that are lacking here, the, the trade-off is just, you know, endless freedom, endless opportunity, you know, endless, you know, there's just so much meaning, you know, in everything that you get to do here. So, um, you know, in particular in Dharmshala, it's, it's a really special place up here. Like I've been in a couple other mountain towns and there's something about this valley that is really special in the people also like it's again like any other place you go it's a completely different culture it's kind of like a very relaxed mountain culture all of the people here are very friendly i've never met so many friends as i have here um you know where it's like you stay a month here in in darmcott bagsu mcleod ganj um you know, like you're, you build a community in a couple of weeks and you, like, where at home do you just walk around and every two minutes, someone knows your name and comes to talk to you and comes to see how your day is going or tell you about something or have a conversation or sit down and just share. Um, 
And, you know, you can just show up to things and things are happening. You know, like someone will put on an event and people actually come. You know, you'll hear music from half a kilometer away and people just start walking towards the music and they show up there. And then you have, you're having a, a, a dance or a party or some kind of thing going on. So, you know, it's, it's amazing in that way. And um, like I said, I'm close to McLeod Ganj. So being in these mountains is also interesting because there's a huge Tibetan Buddhist culture here. Um, you know, this is the home of the Dalai Lama. Um, and basically where like the majority of the Tibetan refugees are, are here. Um, sorry, I think I cut out there for a sec. And so I had, I mean, I had that experience too. Like I've been, I think in this valley for three months and I've gone to now two of the Dalai Lama's teachings at the Dalai Lama temple, which was, you know, a really interesting ritual again in itself, because, um, you know, like there's, he's like Jesus to the Tibetans, you know, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, if there's any time that you're going to see Tibetans pushing and shoving, it's to see the Dalai Lama. Uh, but there's, there's thousands and thousands of people that will come to see him talk. And we were lucky enough to have the opportunity to basically have like the best seats that foreigners could get in, in the entire temple grounds. <clears throat> um, so there's like his room that he normally does his speeches in and then around it is like a giant courtyard and then below it is a giant courtyard with a screen and i noticed that there was like a bunch of cameras there from the media you know and people that translate his talks and record his talks and there's a, a small space basically right in front of the cameras that no one was sitting in and i asked one of the monks like is are we allowed to sit here because the whole place was packed we we're gonna have to go downstairs and basically watch from the tv and they're like, oh yeah, you can sit here, just sit down. And so we're, we're essentially his room, monks are only allowed to sit in and all the windows and doors are open. And then the public crowd starts and we got to sit right there and be in the room basically for the teachings. And so that was really interesting, you know, because they, they fed like 10,000 people or something like that, somewhere between five and 10,000 people. They come around with uh, some kind of Tibetan bread and uh, butter tea, which is uh, like yak milk, milk with salt. It's kind of like a salty drink. And he comes in and around, he goes up to his his chair at the front and then like eats with the people. Like, I don't know too much about Tibetan Buddhism or, or their history, but like that was another thing that I just took from it, which was really profound was just this idea of like breaking bread with each other, with strangers and with like a figure it was just kind of like a powerful experience where you're seeing the Dalai Lama there dipping bread into his, his milk tea and everyone around is eating together, you know, before the ceremony starts and the teaching start. And so, you know, that was a cool opportunity to have because this is literally the only place in the world where that's, you're going to be able to do that. And, um, and he's in his eighties now or something. So, you know, that's the other thing, like, you know, just, seizing the, these opportunities and I, I encourage anyone like if you have time and money or at least the ability to you know leave your possessions at home or do something create some kind of situation where this is possible to do this kind of thing it's just you'll live so much life in such a short amount of time like it'll blow your mind um so yeah i got to have that experience because you know who knows like if i will ever get that experience if I don't do that now, you know, 
if this llama dies and in the next three months, it's like, I might think, Oh, I'm, I, I, my visa's coming up. And it's like, I'll do it the next time I come to India. It's like, Oh no, you, you have to seize these moments. And, and that's something I'm learning on this trip too, is like saying yes to things and like doing things that you're not used to or not comfortable with, or, or, you know, not putting off the opportunity because, you know, these moments are fleeting all of the time. And, and if you say yes to those things and you just go out and you do do the thing, you know, it's, you know, it's just kind of like saying yes to life. That's been a big lesson in traveling for me is, is saying yes to life and like filling my days with life. And that's something I think I learned from Indians because like Indians fill their day with life. Like from morning to night, like they were fucking doing something and whether it's a simple task or going to temple or hiking the Himalayas, it's like, they're always doing something. There's always something happening. Even if they're just standing on the side of the road, you know, they're talking, they're socializing, like they're engaging with their people and their culture and their land and their, you know, their cities and whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, that's, that's been a big one for me, um, is just soaking all, all this up and it becomes so addicting because people back home don't realize how empty their days are. So once you start like really like living, like really living a full life, like you can't go back. Like, that's why I'm still here. It's like, I am wrestling painfully with the idea of returning to Canada prematurely before I feel like I've gotten my fill of adventure. And it's almost like at this mark, it's just getting started. I'm like, I went from being a new traveler, like an uneasy backpacker, not really knowing what the fuck's going on. I'm green to now being at the point where like pretty much everything I do, even the things that are a challenge, I find joy in. And that's just been a complete change in perspective by, you know, the exposure to all these experiences and overcoming the mental hurdles or fears or like just, you know, doing things that might even be like a little bit dangerous to get out of your comfort zone and, and realizing that, you know, uh, the, the thrill of that experience is worth it, you know, because back home, man, like I think about during coronavirus times, sitting on your couch, you're just day after day, either grinding and doing some work or, you know, thinking that you're doing work because you're creating some kind of content that people feel is valuable or, you know, just some people who are just actually quite literally wasting their days doing nothing, watching, you know, Netflix or, or, or working. It's like the, and I, I feel like on this trip, I really like cracked the code to happiness for people. And that 100% is adventure. Like if you are lacking joy and happiness in your life, you don't have enough adventure in your life and you can create adventure at home. Like it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to, although I recommend it travel across the world and abandon all of your responsibilities to your country to have, you know, a, an experience like this, but like just treating each day like an adventure and being like, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to walk and I don't know where I'm going to walk but I'm going to see what happens and I'm going to be present and I'm going to observe the things around me. And if my intuition tells me I should do something, I'm going to act on it and, and follow that guiding voice inside of me. And it just creates opportunities. It's easier to do that here. I think because people are more open and uh, you know, it's just, 
is also when you're shoulder to shoulder with 2 billion people, it's just easy to like fall into different scenarios that are interesting. Um, but yeah. Um, and then I guess kind of like the last few weeks, I've really just been trying to soak in like as much of where I am as I possibly can, because they did change some visa rules. So I have a one year visa, but now they're basically limiting it to six months in a calendar year. So I'm getting close to being six months total in India. So I ended up like, uh, and to speak on this adventure subject, ended up hiking uh, the Triund Trek, which is right behind me, which is the main trek here in these mountains up to where the Alpine of the Himalayas basically starts. And, um, you know, like to that, you know, topic on adventure, I just, I had, and I, and I won't go like too deep into it, but the, um, going on that hike, I, I had a moment, you know, recently where I was, I went on this trek and I went by myself and, you know, when you walk for fucking eight hours, you like gain a lot of perspective when you're alone. And I had this moment where I realized like, I'm fucking trekking the Himalayas right now, like five years ago. I would have never imagined that this would be my life right now, that to be having this experience. And I had this moment where, you know, people always talk about, you know, you should have gratitude for things, you know, look for things to be grateful for. But like, for me, like a true adventure like this, the, and it's hard to describe unless you felt it, but that feeling of gratitude will envelop you without you even having to try. Like when you're in that moment, and you're having that adventure and you are really like in engaging with life in a meaningful way like that, you, you won't have to look for things to look grateful for. It'll just, it'll just rush over you. And that's the feeling that you get from adventure that I think that I'll probably keep chasing for the rest of my life after this trip. Um, because once you, once you feel that once, like, you know, it, like, you know, you, you know, like you end up in some place like Sri Lanka and I'm hand, uh, hand line fishing with the locals and we're catching fucking sharks and there's alligators in the water. And you're just like, it's nighttime. You're like, this is a fucking moment. And like, you want to hold on to that moment, but like what allows you to is, is the gratitude that comes automatically through having such a rich experience. And, um, I think those are just, powerful moments that you get from doing this kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a ride and I feel like I have a lot more. Um, but it's also been a huge source of creativity for me also. Like I'm very clear or getting very clear at least on what my goals are and my goals are changing. Like my life goals, I think are changing being out here, but, um, you know, you just, you know, this is the kind of shit that you can write books about, you know, this is the kind of stuff that you can come home after and, and talk about to people and actually have the experiential knowledge to be able to share authentically and sincere, sincerely with people that can actually change people, people's lives. And it's been something I'm thinking about a lot is like, you know, I like to, you know, post the odd snappy tweet about life coaches and, you know, influencers and this kind of shit because some of it pisses me off and i think the reason that it, i notice it more and i've done it myself oops um 
I, you know, I've fallen into it myself is like, you know, with self-development, like you can read as many books as you want. You can listen to as many podcasts as you want. And that's all great. And that can give you perspective and that can give you power and motivation. And you'll probably change your life doing that in a positive way. But like the, the real genuine insights and, and the uniqueness of your experience and your unique knowledge that I believe can actually change the world has to be from like being out in the trenches, like really living it and getting the unique perspective from the unique experience because you're a different person and you're going to experience something like no other person will. And the insights that you'll get from that will be unique to the world. So what you're saying is you can't just watch uh, YouTube videos and, uh, and then uh, it'd be, you know, be a 23 year old life coach. (laughs) 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 Because because you can summarize the YouTube videos that you've watched. Yeah. So, you know, and I mean, this is just one of like many insights that I've gotten on this trip, just about, you know, life adventure myself, like clarifying what your intentions are, why you're here, what you want to do, how you want to be in the world, you know, even just, you know, seeing how you interact with even just the people around you, you know, it's like you learn so much about yourself being out here because, you know, you're just, you have so much exposure, like I was saying, but, um, one little kind of funny and interesting anecdote that I forgot to say about Dharamshala before we kind of like, we can, we can rack wrap up at least some of the India podcast, uh, was, uh, so when we arrived here, uh, it was basically winter still. And so we got to the Ayurvedic hospital and it was just opening and, um, we actually experienced like a pretty big earthquake when we got here. And so the earthquake knocked out power for the entire state. And, um, and so we were, the whole Valley was out of power for probably like six days and our generator at the uh, hospital was not powerful enough to power the building. So we had to wait a couple days with no power, no hot water. It's the middle of winter. We're in like a concrete building and they replaced the generator that was, or sorry, the uh, transformer that was supplying power to the Valley. And then in a mythical fashion, Indra struck the transformer with a bolt of lightning and knocked power out again for the Valley. And uh, I heard it explode from my room from like a kilometer or two away. And so then uh, again, we're out of power out of hot water, it's snowing. Uh, They replaced the entire board in our building so that we can at least get generator power to the rooms. And rats chewed through the new board. And so we were then again without power for another couple of days, no heat. Um, And and so we're in in this hospital, hospital setting, trying to get treatment, trying to do all this stuff. But it was just, you know, we were put in that situation and like many other situations that I've kind of been in in India, it's like, you also realize like, you're, you're not as soft as you think you are. You're not as weak as you think you are. Like most people are very resilient, but they aren't given enough opportunities to rise to the occasion. And it's not like this was like, you know, a, a huge catastrophe, but like by like day four or five, you know, 
without a shower, you're freezing cold because it's winter. There's no way to heat your rooms and you're in India and there's frequent landslides here. There's frequent earthquakes here in these mountains and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's like, that's just another one, one of those moments where, where you can look at a situation and, and find the negatives in it, or you can be like, I'm going to fucking be able to write about this. And this is going to be a story I'll be able to tell my grandchildren. Like, you know, so there's also those post, um, you know, those post experience rewards that you get regardless, you know, you might have like some of these, you know, profound religious experiences that I've had here, but you also might have like near death experiences here. And that's going to be an awesome story too. And you can always kind of find, find the uh, significance in that, that you get to take with you when you go home. So, yeah, I mean, I've got more stories in there, but I, I kind of wanted to talk about some of the key ones that I thought would be, be super interesting for some people. And I mean, you know, don't be deterred by like the challenges or like maybe some of like the unpleasant experiences that I had. Cause when you're going through it, it's like, you just become like a fucking warrior. It's like crazy shit will happen and, and you just brush it off or laugh at it, you know? And, um, that's kind of the the fun thing about India is like when you learn to play with India and you think about it that way, that India is just playing with you. It's, it's just like a world of, you know, rich experiences. Well, that sounds fantastic. I think, I think we'll probably wrap it up from there. Uh, Cause we got a, a lot of great stuff and I, I really want to encourage all of our guys to listen to this. Cause I think that uh, now makes me want to go. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, there's a lot here. I think that, that people can, can think about, I think, especially. So, uh, I want to thank you again for, uh, you know, tuning in here and uh, sharing all that with me. And, uh, you know, you know, we have other countries to talk about <laughs> next time, <laughs> but, exactly. uh, but, uh, it, it's great to, you know, to obviously one of the coolest things we have about the, the order of fire is that like, uh, we have a wealth of really interesting dudes doing really interesting stuff. Like oh, you're yeah, like, Oh, absolutely. by the way, Ed was a, a singer in India for like 15 years or whatever. <laughs> and like you, you've been over there having all these adventures. And, you know, we got, uh, last week I was shooting with, uh, you know, um, you know, former, uh, special, uh, forces guy. And, uh, you know, that was just, you know, my Saturday last week <laughs> and, uh, you know, doing, you know, so we have all these different guys from all these different backgrounds. And I think that's one of our really, um, kind of the strengths of our group is that, uh, you know, it's, there's always someone doing something really, really interesting instead of like a whole bunch of boring people. Uh, I can't imagine why, while, while you're talking about all this, I think about, we were talking, <laughs> we were talking shit about influencers and they, um, I just think of some of these guys that are like talking about their Lamborghinis. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, that is the most boring thing I could possibly imagine to do with that money. Like, <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> like, I'm like, you could, with that much money, like you could, you could probably live in India for five, for like five or six years. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. And, and uh, or, you know, buy a house there or like something, you know, um, you know, and, and, or create art or, you know, it's like, I'm doing this thing right now. Obviously I'm, you know, uh, working someone to create a song and, and uh, then filming a video and whatever. And it's just a few thousand dollars, 
like I can't imagine like, Oh, we made like $120,000. I'm going to buy a fancy car. What? Yeah. Like, (laughs) you know, like you could make art or whatever. So it's great to see, uh, you know, guys out there living life and doing, doing something different. So, um, looking forward to seeing how your adventure progresses and, uh, thanks again. All right, man. Thanks for letting me share my stories and, uh, appreciate it as always. All right. See you later, man. Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com.